I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Oh, South Kakalaka! Don't you dare be sour! Clap for your world-famous full-time champs! And feel the power! It's a new day, yes it is! For 12-Pack Radio, get excited, y'all. Welcome back, everyone, to 12-Pack Radio, your podcast source for Pac-12 football news, Pac-12 gambling advice with William Hill's Max Meyer in the home of the beta Rank College Football Statistical Model. This is a sharp college football podcast. Thank you for joining us. This is Brian Conger. And another day, another will he, won't they, will she, won't she, uh, in terms of whether or not there's going to be a season. Uh, but we have a couple fun things that we're going to to cover. The first is, obviously, uh, the We Are United movement and them talking with Larry Scott. We'll talk about that. And we have a segment where we're talking about the comments that Pac-12 announcers make that let you know that they actually don't follow the Pac-12. And I thought that this is kind of fun. We like we have our own submissions. We ask for submissions from our listeners and uh, should be pretty solid. So uh, stick with us. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at 12PacRadio, 12PAC Radio. We are, um, we are moving and grooving on Twitter, by the way. So thanks for all of our new followers. We appreciate it. We're almost up to 700, which is kind of solid. And we'll continue to grow that as we crank through this off season. And I am joined by Mr. Max Meyer. What's going on, Max? Welcome back. Uh, thank you. And Pac-12 did get a pretty big win today, at least the Pac-12 alum, with Colin Morikawa winning the PGA Championship. Oh, far out. Far, now, where did he go? Calgrad. And, uh, and the course was in San Francisco this year. Oh, nice. Home field advantage, Rob. Are you a golfer, Rob? Uh, I played a lot of golf growing up, like even competitively. And then... As I got older, I was like, uh, there's a lot I could do in four hours. <laughs> I shaved like five points off of my game once I realized that I don't need to get mad. Um, so, you know, just some <laughs> tips for the younger golfers out there. Uh, but that is neither here nor there. That's great. It's nice to see some Pac-12 love going on on the uh, golf course. If you didn't listen to our podcast last week, uh, our thanks again to West Coast College Football for coming on the show, and we'll be doing some more stuff with him, so really enjoyed him as a guest. We had talked about the We Are United movement and the Pac-12 players uh, sending a list of uh, requests and uh, things that they needed to see happen before they uh, wanted to take the field this coming year. And uh, after we had recorded, there was a conversation that was started between them and with uh, Larry Scott and the Pac-12 administration, and they ended up having a phone call. So let's let's talk about that. I mean, I don't want to spend a ton of time because, spoiler alert, like, they're still not getting paid. But, Rob, uh, there was some interesting details that came out. Uh, tell us about what you thought about the call. Uh, I mean, there... <laughs> I mean, like, let's just start that uh, apparently Larry Scott told the players uh, on the call that uh, their their letter in the Players' Tribune was a misguided PR stunt. <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming it went to, I'm assuming it went downhill there from there. Um, 
<laughs> and I mean, Larry Scott does know about misguided PR stunts just based I mean, off of <laughs> what the what uh, the Oregonian reported about with LA Times and the Players Tribune. Yeah, it takes one to know one. So, you know, they, they heard it from the master. Rob. Good point, Max. I mean, just I mean, yes, the uh, the awe inspiring, just like the gall of the band who sent off like Pac-12 teams to play basketball in China um and truly misguided prs <laughs> um yeah so i the, the there was a lot of it was pretty acrimonious i think uh from the player's perspective not feeling that they were taking seriously uh unwillingness from scott to commit to you know more safety measures for the players um and th- they felt like it was basically a lot of a lot of talk and, and not a lot of action um, and then, I mean, like for lack of a better way to put it, I mean, just I, like the the, te- the tenor and the way they described it, like they kind of felt like they were being talked down to a little bit. <laughs> I can see that. And Larry Scott released a letter in response. He cited just Larry, which I thought, I don't know why I thought that was funny, but it just like that. It was just spot on what I expected from uh, this administration. And I think the couple things he had basically highlighted, hey, here are the safety protocols were also taken. Also, we'll we'll definitely talk more about setting up the committee about committees on racial injustice. Uh, so it seems like they are willing to give there, which is kind of the easiest thing for them to give on. Uh, but really no talk. Actually, even uh, certainly before there was talk on finances and all that stuff. But all the reports that I saw or read after the call happened, like nobody was talking about money. Everybody was talking about safety, basically. And that seems to be like sticking point number one. Max, you were out and about last week. Um, any, anything you want to chime in regards to the We Are United movement and uh, and or the call and the, the repercussions of said call? Yeah, it's just, um, I mean, given Larry Scott's track record, I'm not sure how people thought that he was going to approach this situation thoughtfully and delicately. And, and sure enough, uh, he met expectations. It seems like we are not going to have fall football, which was, spoiler alert, something like what that was already baked into the cake. But um, the schools decided to bring their players on early anyway. And uh, I mean, that hasn't been canceled yet. But as of right now, there are all the power five conferences are having like an emergency three day meeting on what to do. Um, I saw that the Pac-12 had. Uh, had floated the idea of securing a rather large loan to cover uh, the expenses that would have been, or the revenue that would be lost from a college football season. It just seems crazy to me that there's no plan B uh, in terms of spring football. It's just been this stone wall of, nope, we're not doing that. We don't want, we're not doing that. We're, we're, we're going to, we're going to shoot for fall. And, and here we are. And, and we're not ha- like, we are likely not going to have fall. And just the lack of, planning it just seems like all of these conferences really don't have their act together and if i were a player i'd be like nope i'm out like you all had like four months to get your act together to get us on campus to make us feel comfortable and that is not happening and uh, rob it's kind of sad but it looks like we're looks like we're going to be pushing this to the spring at the very best and here we are yeah i mean i think that there's uh, i think a lot of people are saying things that are functionally incorrect there a lot of people are running around saying like the safety stuff hasn't changed there there actually has been some movement on um on the long-term effect potential effects of covid of late um and that has been spooking university administrators 
um, particularly around cardiovascular issues. Um, there was a recent study in Germany uh, following 100 people post-COVID. Um, they got some reasonable publicity, um, and it was, you know, 60 of them had some, some scarring around the heart, and, and many of them, it looked like it, their, their heart post-COVID looked like they had a heart attack. Um, and most of these were people that had been asymptomatic, you know, or very, very mild symptoms. In, and this is something that we have seen reporting on in the U.S. from uh, cardiologists uh, as well. As this, you know, we don't really know about a lot about the long-term effects. Uh, this, in particular, is what moved the MAC, the 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 uh, the MAC to cancel their season. The MAC, um, my MAC, MACTION. Um, you know, there, there was a recommendation from their medical advisory committee in particular citing this. Um, and then the, uh, you know, Northern Illinois um, and their athletic director really made a push, you know, off of that advisory to go ahead and cancel the season. It wasn't just about the money for the MAC, even though they'd had a lot of their buy games canceled. Um, you know, it's it's this larger concern, I think. And, you know, the, the you know, the really the star pitcher for the, you know, the Boston Red Sox is an excellent example there was a defensive lineman for the University of Houston who has had COVID, who came out uh, today publicly and said that he has cardio, you know, you know, cardiovascular issues post-COVID, um, and that it makes his, you know, cur- you know, his continue to play football a, a bit of a question. So there, I mean, and, and the Red Sox picture is out for the season. It's it's sort of the it's not just the mortality, which and and you know, for this age group is incredibly low. Uh, it is the, you know, the potential longer term effects that I think schools are concerned about. Um, and also, li- I mean, liability, <laughs> like, like, I mean, even the waivers weren't, the waivers were in no way going to stand up in court. Uh, you know, that, 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 that type of, um, you know, assumed risk liability in a workplace or, you know, almost anywhere else in American jurisprudence hasn't really been the case for over a hundred years uh, that that kind of a setup is, is held. So signing the waivers was never going to protect the schools um, from getting sued from players that ended up with long-term issues out of this. Or, you know, if it was a staff member, potentially that, you know, if someone had died, um, their family suing. So the they're, they're in a bit of a hard spot. Like they can't, they can't, create a bubble without admitting that the players are really employees and they don't want to do that. That's a, <laughs> so since they can't do that, then that leaves them with, you know, really an untenable situation kind of as we've seen with baseball, that's attempted to be pulling this off without a bubble. I mean, baseball's at the point where like, it, it's really an open question where the, the St. Louis Cardinals even continue to play. I think that there's more nuance than people are putting into it with this, but the Mac moving, in particular, I think puts the other conferences in a bit of a spot because if they play, they now actually take on more liability if that were to go ever go to a court because the first thing the plaintiff's lawyer is going to do is cite that the MAC thought that it wasn't safe to play <laughs> and then call their medical advisory committee and everything else. And uh, that's going to make it a lot harder to defend yourself in court if you were sued. So my expectation, unfortunately, is that, that this is going to be pushed to the spring. Yeah, Max, to bring this over to the Pac-12, one of the things that I thought was interesting was that the timing of the player's letter to the Pac-12 was perfect, right? It's like, we don't know if the season's going to happen anyway. They had just announced the schedule for all the Pac-12 teams, like, full steam ahead, y'all! <laughs> and they immediately, like, pumped the brakes on that. Uh, on the other end, of uh, the other side of the coin, if you're the Pac-12 and all these players come and demand money, 
and you're already in like a really tough spot in terms of whether or not you can actually have a season without being sued and all that stuff. It's pretty easy for Larry Scott to say like, um, you know, no, we just can't do any of this stuff like outside of the, the racial injustice committees and maybe a few other things like we'll try our best on COVID. So I'm curious, where do you think this goes next year? Right. Like, so the players still are going to have some demands, uh, but maybe they don't. I, I don't know. Like, let's assuming let's just assume for right now, for sake of argument, that there's a beautiful vaccine and every, you know, everybody's fine. Like, you know, we're, we're going back to back two years into, into the past. But the players still have these uh, these grievances in regards to how they're getting paid, their name, image and likeness. How do you think that gets handled um, if if college football goes back to normal next year? Well, I just I think it depends for the Pac-12 if they can get some star players that are on board. Like I think um, Panay Sewell like tweeting that out, and uh, Oregon star um, defensive back like Javon Highland being like a big part of it. They need like quarterbacks and like more players. I I think to like rally around and actually let so that way Larry Scott isn't dismissive on the next phone call if if it's if it's you know, uh, more uh, bigger names and a higher percentage of the league. But I still think that there are like the, the COVID related medical issues and, and, um, the, the racial injustice, uh, points as well. Like, I think that those are two things that the PAC 12, especially given how the PAC 12 prides itself on diversity with coaches, like those two things I, I think should be Relative, I don't want to say like relatively easy, but I, I think achievable for sure for the Pac-12 to accomplish. Uh, the the revenue aspect that's going to be tricky, um, just because I mean with college football, if they really wanted a season, like I feel like that they were basically choosing between having a season versus amateurism, and that college football, if they would have gone to the bubble system, it would have had a better chance of working than whatever plan they had now. But if they were to go to the bubble, then there's no way that the that football players could be still called student athletes. They, they would be athletes, and they and I I just think that the way that college football would have had to save its season, they they probably would have had to d- dismiss the notion of am- amateurism and make college football a professional league, like really what it what it should be. I, I think that that as just because college football has elected. A, yeah, I mean, they basically elected to not have a season versus to abolish amateurism. And so I think getting player revenue is going to be tricky. But I think that there are other aspects that are achievable. I think it's going to lead to a lot of long term things, even outside uh, the Pac-12 and whether players get name, image and likeness and maybe get a little bit more of a stipend uh, towards them. I mean, but like the, the financial ramifications of them not having a season are like so gigantic. And I mean, like, I think you see like, one of the things we were talking about, Rob, in the last podcast, and we were almost got to bold predictions and we kind of forgot about it. I think there's a scenario, uh, and I think it actually happens, where the Power Five just pulls away and does their own thing now. Um, and, and sure, they, they'll rely on some of the group of five teams and stuff. like. But like there there is going to be such a gap between the haves and have-nots in regards to how this impacts a season. Think of the MAC, right? You, like you mentioned, Rob, all their buy games are, are gone. And it wasn't like their revenue sources were that strong anyway. Um, and, and like, I just, it's just going to be such a big, big change in the way college football landscape looks like in a year. Um, I just think there's going to be such a big separation and the power five conferences are just going to be in a place that's widely different than any of the other conferences. Uh, do you think that's the case? What do you think? 
I mean, I think they're the you know you could argue the Power Five programs are in more of a pickle because they have a lot more revenue to make up <laughs> right now, right? You know, than the, than the Mac squads. But I mean, I think the 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 what the Pac-12 is doing by floating out low interest loans is a, is a smart decision. Uh, you know, for them, like it, it it's something that they should be able to tie themselves over with. Um, but you're absolutely going to be taking a financial hit and there's, there, there may, you know, even be some, you know, potential donor hit as well, uh, on their ability to raise money given where the economy is. But I think that you could see, I mean, you're right in that, you know, the power, you know, the NCAA didn't show a tremendous amount of leadership on this, um, partly to try to keep the power five from deciding to go out on their own. If the NCAA had decided to pull the trigger on, on canceling, um, but the power five, you know, if they need to, if they find themselves in a spot where they're really between a rock and a hard place, you know, financially, um, you know, they could, you know, in theory, they could potentially make more money out on their own. I, when I see that, I guess the, my, some of my question though about this is they already, for the most part, own all of the revenue sources and streams, right? Like they, they have, um, you know, the only thing that they could potentially make more money out of is providing more compelling matchups. Um, and dropping the, you know, the non-conference games against, um, you know, nobody's that nobody actually wants to pay to see, you know, that that's where there's potentially, you know, extra revenue to be squeezed out. But the, you know, the idea that the power five is like, there's not, they're not revenue sharing much already, right? Like they could stop doing buy games and then cash bigger checks for those non-conference games is, is where the potential money is um, to be made for them. And it's not that that's small. It's just, it's not like a gazillion dollars. Like, you know, it's not like the, the, the NCAA is administering the $1 billion NCAA tournament in football, like, uh, like they do in basketball. Um, you know, the power five really owns, I mean, they own the college football playoff for the most part as well. Yeah. No Boise state. None of that. None of that. Um, Hey, let's switch over because there was a story that broke the last time we recorded. And as as we were recording, the story had basically started to leak out. And that was what was happening at Washington State with Nick Rolovich talking to a player about um, whether or not he uh, his involvement in the We Are United movement would have an impact on his future at Washington State. And at the time, like most crazy stories, I always take like I don't want to. We try not to share things that happen immediately because we wanted to kind of, we want to kind of figure out okay what happened because um, what I found is that usually outrageous stories are outrageous for a reason and surprise this one wasn't <laughs> the, the audio of the Nick Rolovich call came out and he basically said um, yeah if you're joining this movement it's probably gonna have issues for you in the future um, and I was like oh my gosh I can't believe that and I was waiting for some sort of statement from Rolovich or Washington State and the statement from from them was like. Like, yeah, we're gonna um, we're we're really we're really into diversity. Like, like there's just like no, it it was wild, Rob. And like, well, let me throw it to you, Max, because Rob, we're just talking to the last one. I I just normally there's some sort of like but in the story, and there really wasn't in this one. It was just like, yeah, Nick Rolovich uh, told the player that if he joined this movement, it'd, it'd be a problem in the future. Yeah, I mean, and, and Nick Rolovich. Obviously, first season uh, at Washington State, it's already nearly impossible to recruit to Pullman, and, and he just made that task so much more difficult by showing that he, he's not relating to a major movement for for a lot of his players. Rob, 
I I usually try to give people the benefit of the doubt, and we try it on the podcast, and then like the next day. Now, I don't think that call was supposed to be recorded for whatever that means, uh, but it came out and the tra- <laughs> and the, right in the transcripts out. Like, I mean, and, and the fact that there was really no other response from Washington State. I mean, like the the story basically was reported just like the person from the Spokesman Review reported it, which was um, it just was the story on its face, and here we are. Uh, it's gonna be a problem, right? Yeah, I mean, this is really. I mean, I don't know what Rolovich was thinking when he he decided to throw that out there, but I mean, it was a doozy, right? I mean, like if if you're gonna if you're thinking about joining that, well, things are gonna. Ch- I mean, it was just like it was a pretty out in the clear, you know, unveiled threat, um, you know, from Rolovich there, which is a. I mean, just as Max alluded to, just monumentally dumb <laughs> given, given how hard, how hard of a job it already is in Pullman, um, you know, there and really too, I mean, there's no, uh, you know, if you're Washington state, you know, yes, you, you may not want to have to share revenue and pay the players and you may have this like, you know, exalted view of amateurism, uh, you know, there, but yeah, there's not, there's just no percentage right now for head coaches to be acting like this because like players have, you know, more and more power, uh, you know, it, as, as really they should in their lives. And they're about, like, we are every, the only sport you can't do a, you know, the only sports you can't do a, a transfer in, you know, a one-time free transfer in are, are basketball and football, you know, like all the other sports you can. <laughs> so like this idea, like it's coming, you know, to, to, you know, football and coaches aren't going to be able to act like this anymore because they'll just lose too many players. Like the Rolovich kind of doesn't get that. Um, and he's put the, he's put himself and his program in a really unfortunate position before he's even coached a game. I do think, I, I, I totally agree with you. I do think that there is a, I can see a scenario where Rolovich gets back on track where, right. You come out and say, you know, I, what I was saying was hesitant. Like I was hasty to do that. And obviously we support the, you know, the uh, interests of our players, blah, 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 blah. He shows that he can do that. And then they move on. Well, let's see if that happens. <laughs> because Oh my goodness. Uh, that was, that was a heck of a phone call that came out. Um, anything else uh, on that, Max? I just found it fascinating. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think what was said, I think what needed to be said has been said. I mean, yeah, it was just, it was a really dumb decision by Rolovich to dig his own grave there with, with such a, you know, uh, a, a terrible stance overall on the, on the issue. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. We're going to our next segment, which is we're going to talk about the things that announcers say on Pac-12 football games that let you know that they actually don't pay attention at all to Pac-12 football games. We got some suggestions from our readers. Um, I have a couple that I want to talk about. I know the other guys do, too. And looking forward to the segment should be really fun. And check it out right after this. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, we're back. If you're listening to this podcast in the... 
early August when there's likely not going to be a fall season. That means that you are a hardcore Pac-12 football fan. <laughs> and that means that you've watched like a gazillion of these games, particularly the national uh, games, where some sort of announcer will make a comment about about a team and you go like, well, that's not right. Like, clearly you have not been watching anything that's happened on the West Coast for the last six months. And um, I'm so we're going to throw out things like this that we think that people say that give us that trigger. Um, I'm going to start with the first one. I'm going to throw this out. And it's when announcers say the Chip Kelly's prolific offense. Like anytime somebody talks about Chip Kelly still being an offensive genius, uh, I I always have to take a step back and consider whether or not this person has been watching Pac-12 football, Rob, because clearly there's a difference between the Chip Kelly offense when he was at Oregon and whatever he tried to put together in the NFL. And then one of the things that was really interesting, I was listening to the, our friends at the Quack 12 podcast and they had um, David Woods on and Hippleday and David Woods were talking about how Kelly would basically rewrite the playbook every game. And he was just trying to like, for reasons unknown, uh, I guess trying to throw different looks at teams, but just whatever he's put together has just been a cornucopia of awful. Like, how, how do you feel when somebody talks about like Chip Kelly's offense? You're like, oh, this prolific offense. Out of the field, you're like, Dorian Thompson Robinson is the quarterback. He can't be that good. I mean, they, he's he's consistent at UCLA. Uh, in 2018, their offense graded out at 54 in beta rank. In 2019, their offense graded out at 54 in beta rank. Um, just not not a particularly good offense uh, from Chip Kelly. And I, 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 I yeah, I, you you can kind of tell there that like there when someone comes into that and they're like, you know, still an offensive wizard, Chip Kelly, uh, despite the fact that the Bruins uh, really are have a bad Power Five offense by any measure. Um, and they're not, I mean, they're not particularly explosive. They're not particularly efficient. They're just not a very good offense. All right. All right. Max, do you disagree with that? Or, I mean, I, I guess we've kind of dunked all over Chip. By the way, UCLA has not put up their, now I understand that like COVID and we might not have a season, but the run up until now, there is still not an updated UCLA football roster for 2020. <laughs> like, just like, it's freaking ridiculous. All right, Rob, Rob, give us, uh, give us something that you hear that drives you nuts. Oh, you could tell, like, if you're watching a Stanford game and someone talks about how much Stanford likes to establish the run and dominate the line of scrimmage, like, ooh, yeah, they haven't been paying attention. Uh, Bryce Love, awesome, three years ago, three or two years ago, when he just had that crazy, crazy year. And then, um, and then again, our friend Hithliday is like, hey, check out that run blocking over at Stanford. And, yeah, they might try to establish the run. They might not do it super well with Cameron Scarlett back there. And, and then them moving over to an air raid and just totally changing the way that offense worked. One of the other things that's interesting, too, is they're starting to – they're, like, integrating different pieces into that David Shaw offense. It might not, might not work well, <laughs> but they are trying to do different things, which gives me a little bit of flicker of hope, Max. Yeah. And I mean, with, with Stanford, like, yeah, what, what Rob was saying, you can tell when it's like Stanford will dominate you in the trenches when the offensive line hasn't been good in what, like four or five seasons. And yeah, I mean, with the run game, just with last year was Scarlett getting like 40 carry games for 120 yards or so. It's, it's, it's the Davis Mills show this year. I'm excited about that. I, I just think it'll be, that's one of the biggest stories um, that isn't from a premier team for me is if if there's a season how does Stanford's offense look with the the quarterback that really came on at the back half of the year in just a brutal year overall though so it'll be interesting to see that um Max well I guess it's kind of a little bit like your Chip Kelly take but except I'm going with Oregon 
in that when announcers say that, oh, Oregon's like offense first, like uh, the offense is the main reason why this team wins. And the, the defense, Oregon's defense is really damn good. And it's one of the best defenses in the country, uh, especially going into this season. I mean, last season when Andy Avalos took over as defensive coordinator in first season, I mean, Oregon's defense. I, I, I even think, yeah, Oregon's defense was better than their offense last year. Oregon right now, de- uh, defensive first team. But yeah, I, their offense is still good, but the defense is the unit I, I, I'd rather have. Yeah, I mean, like this, this has moved to a ground and pound like we're going to just own you in the offensive line now it'll be interesting to see what joe moorhead does and like that's one thing too when somebody talks about oregon and not talking about joe moorhead like that is such man coordinators matter so much and when your team picks up a legit awful like or awesome awful or awesome (laughs) coordinator it really matters and it changes the way that your team is going to perform in the coming years just really important hires and uh but rob Max talked about Oregon being a defensive team. Like I, that totally makes sense to me. Did that check out with Baderank? Yeah. Oregon last year, the defense was really good. They were at, finished out at number eight overall in Baderank. The offense was only at 17 this coming season. Uh, we project them to have the number two offense in all of college fo- or defense in all of college football. This is a great, great defense coming into this season. And they were merely a good, you know, uh, offense last year. And then I guess to go back to Rob's Stanford point, I feel like announcers that might not know the Pac-12 as well and, and think that Stanford is a Stanford team of old, that's this Oregon team. Yeah. No, well, they, people, like, they talk about tempo, too. Like, sometimes, like, they'll slip up and be like, Oregon likes to push the tempo, and you're like, wait, wh- where have you been? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got a good one here. Carl Durrell at UCLA took him to five consecutive bowls. That is a fact. He did do that. But... Their records were six and seven, six and six, seven and six, and six and six. And then the one year they made it to like a like they had a ten win season. They made it to the Sun Bowl. They lost by forty to USC and by thirty eight to Arizona. I watched all of those teams. I was a big UCLA fan. Those teams sucked. And like I, I mean, congratulations. You're you're recruiting in the heart of Los Angeles. You have Westwood. You have a beautiful campus, a top university, and you went basically 500 the entire uh, career there. I, I, that I, I, whenever I see that, I'm like, you, you were not watching what happened at UCLA. Um, <laughs> Rob, we'll throw it to you. Carl Durrell, your thoughts. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, someone that we're very familiar with too. I mean, like Rich Rodriguez, like everybody's like, Oh, Rich Rodriguez went to all those bowls. I'm like, he went to a bunch of crappy bowls because there's a bunch of crappy bowls. Like he, he did not have a good football team for most of those years. And that was really true of Durrell. I mean, yeah, they went to bowls, but I mean, what does that even mean these days? Like, you, Oh, you were 500. Congratulations. Here's your bowl game. Durrell. I mean, he was at a time period where, you know, coaches usually got a little bit more leashed than they do now. Um, I don't know that he would have lasted as long as he did at UCLA, you know, given some of the performance uh, that he actually had there. Yeah, that ten and two season. By the way, they pulled like three wins out of their butt. Like th- those were, man, that that was one of the lucky, <laughs> more lucky double digit seasons I've watched uh, in quite a while. Um, Rob, what else you got? Uh, I I I think it's like too when people talk about you know USC, you know, having like real top defensive talent, um, you know, like and projecting them to the NFL. It's not that I don't think that USC doesn't have some talent, but like it really hasn't translated on, you know, in the NFL draft in a little bit. And I think people really forget that, right? That, that uh, about USC that they haven't really been sending guys to the league like they used to uh, of late either. And so I, I think people still do get really hyped up 
um, you know, about guys uh, at USC and like some of those guys like have even of late have gone undrafted, um, you know, for the Trojans. So I think when an announcer, when they're coming in and they're talking about like, a, you know, a USC players, NFL prospects, like you can often feel like, oh, wait, like. I gotta take I gotta take a break on this one because like it's been a little while since USC actually sent somebody to the first round, uh, you know, for, on, on defense. That's gotta hurt to hear a little bit, Max. But still, they are loaded with talent. I could be year. wrong. I gotta <laughs> double check <laughs> that. But like I'm, pr- I'm trying to remember the no, last I, USC I, defensive I, I, lineman that went in the first round. Leonard Williams. Oh yeah, yeah. Look that Max knows his stuff. <laughs> what do you what do you think about what do you think about the defense? I mean, we've talked a little bit about USC on the show. But man, there's just there's some big bodies up there, and there's some pedigree. I don't know, man. Like it's good. That was that was I think the biggest story coming in uh, this year was whether or not USC's defense was going to put it together because the offense certainly has been really solid. Um, I don't know. Like how how bullish were you on USC's defense, Max? No, I mean I I, I think Rob's right, and that whether it's USC player development, I mean USC's also had a lot of top line uh, defensive talent transfer. But with USC's defense this year, I just think not having Clancy Pendergast is a plus, though I'm not entirely sure how Todd Orlando will be. But I still think the fact that he's not Clancy Pendergast, I think that that's only a positive development. Uh, And Orlando, uh, he's shown at different stops that usually the first year under his system uh, has led to improvement. So I think USC's defense can be decent. I don't. And. I, I really like I really like their secondary. I also really like their defensive line. The line the linebacking core is ish, or has some question marks, but I, I think that they, I think they'll be better than last year, especially uh, hopefully with the run defense. All right, so this one's a little different because we haven't seen it yet, but we've seen it in preview magazines. Uh, Cal's winning more than nine games. <laughs> like whenever I read that, I'm like, mm, you sure about that? Uh, you know, like they lose Evan Weaver. They they basically replaced a good defensive coordinator with a not good defensive coordinator and uh, and really couldn't stop the run up the middle. That's a problem. And it's not like they're really changing much this year up. No, I mean, uh, we've, we've talked about this. I mean, like, I feel like a lot of national sports writers tend to take a, a fairly superficial approach to some of their predictions going into a season. And they kind of look at, you know, they, they look at the games that they remember that a team played. They look at like the returning production a little bit and they really look at is the quarterback coming back. You know, so you end up with like projections for Cal that, you know, like 11 games or, or you know, them beating out Washington. Like I, I, I don't I, I don't quite understand if people have Cal ahead of Washington in the north, um, even with Washington struggles on offense. Yeah, I just I don't get like I still I still don't know if Cal has a nose tackle. I don't like the Peter Sermon hire on at defensive coordinator. I don't like Marcel Yates coaching the secondary. Um, no Evan Weaver, uh, and the offense was like yeah they bring everybody back, but they were they were okay <laughs> last season. Like and the Musgrave hire could really work. They did need to make a move, but uh, I don't know that there's enough there to make me say like oh yeah Cal Pac-12 favorite. All right, Max, you got any other ones here? Yeah, so I'll go with another one that I don't think has been said but could be said, uh, that Oregon State head coach Jonathan Smith could really use a good year because he's won, he's only 7-18 and 18 in his first two years, and he might be end, up, end up on the hot seat. And I, with Smith, I mean, the record obviously doesn't tell the whole story. He was left with a really barren cupboard. And I think that last year or last season, he really exceeded all expectations 
And I think even with maybe a four and eight or three and nine year that he's still in good shape just because of the direction he has the program heading. Oh, and you can see that in recruiting too, and not just on the field. I mean, they've been bringing in some really solid players out of like like pretty power, like Mission Viejo High School. They have a couple four star like four star linebacker committed to them uh, out of Mission Viejo. I mean, like they're going down into Southern California and places and bringing up some players, which is really interesting. Yeah, Rob, I totally agree. Anytime someone's like, uh, now we we were down on them this year, but we weren't down yeah. on the program in general. No, I, I love the direction that Smith is taking this program. I mean, we're down a little this year because they just lose so much about from their offense, and that was really the engine of the team last year. But I liked, I really love the coaching staff. I like everything that they're doing. I think that they might tread water a little bit this year or maybe take a small step back. But, I mean, I think Oregon State is more than happy where with where Jonathan Smith is taking the program. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't understand that take at all. <laughs> all right, Rob, what else you got? Uh, you know, I think another one when we talk about like, you know, like folks not watching, like I, and there are some folks even around the Pac-12 that have said this, um, but having Jaden Daniels ahead of Keaton Slovis in the QB rankings. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I, like, it's not like that, that there's been some national writers that have done that. Um, I just, I I think it shows that like folks haven't watched enough Pac-12 games and that they maybe just caught that, you know, Oregon game where ASU beat Oregon. Um, you know, because there's, there's. There's just not. I mean, I think if you watched enough of USC and um, and that that you know Arizona State team, like it was it was pretty clear who the better quarterback was. I guess you could argue, like I'm I'm not going to argue this, but I guess, I guess you could say like, well, the system is making Keaton Slovis at USC. Pff, who cares, man? Like he's awesome there. Like that that offense is going to like fly next year. And, and Max, like you're over there, you know better than we do. I mean, like, I again, I think it's Slovis and then it's everybody else. How far do you think the gap is between Slovis and Daniels? No, I, I think that Slovis is, a, is in his own tier for Pac-12 quarterbacks. And in terms of nationally, like uh, Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields are one and two. And then you could argue Slovis is as high as three. I mean, I, I really like Sam Howell. Uh, North Carolina. Uh, I'm sure Derek King, who transferred from Houston to Miami, might get some votes. Uh, I'm I'm just trying to maybe like Kyle Brock Trask, Purdy. Florida, Callan Mond, Brock Purdy. Yeah, I mean, th- I feel like all those guys could be, have an argument for three. Yeah, and like that's high praise for any quarterback in the conference when you're talking about all those names and your like sophomore quarterback is is in there. So I think USC has a lot. To, to really look forward to. Uh, one of the things that, that I've kind of heard, not during games, but where does Arizona go after Khalil Tate? They go forward. That's where they go, Rob. <laughs> I, that one, I was just like, have you have you seen how different this looks with Greg Gunnell in at QB? Like, I mean, I'll, like there, and there are definitely times when Gunnell was sort of overwhelmed behind the offensive line struggles. Uh, but, yeah, I, I sort of feel like people um, – we're, uh, we're, we're still a little caught up in the, the 2017 Khalil Tate um, and that he was the engine of the offense rather than um, a, a, a part that really did not fit into the, you know, Mazzoni's offense very well at all. Max, do you have any other ones? I, I have one more that's more of a pet peeve, but. Um... I'll go one more. That uh, Pac-12, these Pac-12 refs, they don't throw enough flags. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got to let them play, man. You got to let them play. Yeah. I mean, oh man, 
Yeah, if 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 an announcer actually ever said that, maybe never call a Pac-12 game again. I don't like, and I have to go back and remember. I think they did the championship game, this last one, right? It wasn't at Pac-12 rest, and I don't think they embarrassed themselves. But um, I was kind of like half watching the national title game. Uh, <laughs> do you guys recall that? I, I have to. I'm sure that they did something dumb. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, uh... But on the bright side, like the game was in no way close enough for it to matter, right? Like, exactly. Like, no. <laughs> Yeah, that LSU offense. Holy Moses, um, Rob, you have any other ones? No, I'm out. I'm I'm out. I can't think of uh, I can't think of any other ones that are like really like an obvious like such an obvious tell. Yeah, yeah about, like for me, like for me, the the obvious one I, I think is Stanford. I think that that's like the one, Stanford and Chip Kelly too. Like th- those are the two big obvious ones. The stout defensive line of Stanford. And you're like, well, yeah, maybe like <laughs> maybe a couple years ago, buddy. Um, yeah, totally with you. When those things jump out, like, and it was really brutal. Um, like the year after uh, Crystal Ball came in, and people were still talking about Oregon's like fast, you know, offense. <laughs> like, are you watching this game? Like, this offense sucks, especially that first year. I'm like, oh lord, this offense is brutal. Uh, but they really have, have been able to make it a strong portion of the team. The one thing that really drives me nuts. And it's not necessarily the announcers. It's it's actually more some people that respond. And I actually don't think most of them are regular listeners of the podcast. But if you're going to come at us about Washington's offense and where we're putting them and not have on paper exactly why you think Donovan is a good offensive coordinator, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I just don't. <laughs> like, I need I need a written signed note for you to leave class early, sir. Like like I need that in my hand. And and we've gotten it a couple times. And it one of the things that that kind of is why we it drives me a little bit nuts is Rob like and, and Max, we were higher on Washington than most people last year. Um, because we still thought they were a good team. They just had a, they had some bad games, and they certainly the offense was kind of a mess. But we've always been bullish on their defense. We think that they, they've been fairly well coached, although the offense has been kind of a problem since Smith left. Um, but last year, I think when a lot of people were giving up on Washington, we still saw them as a quality team, Max. It's tricky because just, I mean, there were some sports books that still had really high expectations for Washington, and I didn't think that they should be that like. Under Washington, 10 wins was one of my two biggest Pac-12 win total bets last season. But did I think that Washington would fall below like eight wins? No. Based off of their from last year, he easily could have won double-digit games. Just blew several double-digit leads. And that was really the Achilles heel for this team. Yeah, I guess my point was we never really jumped off of the band. Like, we weren't on the bandwagon, but we also didn't, like, jump off the sinking ship. Like, we just we assumed. Sure, like, but, like, yeah. but, 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 like what like did i don't think any of us were thinking like like i just don't think anyone was thinking that like washington would be a 500 team last year i suppose this is more of a response to washington fans if there's one fan base that really gets on us it's the washington fans and i guess my point is more being like dude we weren't dunking on your team last year <laughs> like even though they won eight games like i think we we fairly we were really fair with washington last year and like we continue to be i I think we all think that their defense is going to be awesome and Donovan's really got to prove it. Um, I, that's kind of my standpoint. And sometimes like it just, that whiplash can, can be real testy um, <laughs> when it comes to that fan. Whatever. Base. Jo- Donovan sucked. Yeah. <laughs> Donovan sucked. No, I mean like, I mean, come on, like the numbers back it up. Like he wasn't a good offensive coordinator at Vanderbilt and don't give me that. Oh, it's Vanderbilt. Like, you know, who was a good offensive coordinator at Vanderbilt? Andy Ludwig. Right. Like (laughs) it's possible to put together a good offense in Nashville. Um, 
and he got fired from Penn State for a reason, right? Like, uh, you know, and he hasn't, we haven't had a chance to see him call plays since, so he's a bit of an unknown, unknown commodity. It's not that there might not be upside, right? Like, I think that that's true. He might have learned some things in the NFL, and he certainly might have, you know, picked some things up. But if you're just going off of, like, what we saw from him as a college offensive coordinator, you know, in his two opportunities at the Power Five, he was not good. And there's no dressing that up or getting around it or anything like that. I mean, yeah, Penn State had some sanctions. They also had some talent. They underperformed that talent by a mile, you know, like under Donovan. Like, he was fired, you know, like, Franklin had brought him with him from Vanderbilt, expecting that he would like, you know, really be able to help turn it around. And he identified him as like, we're not going to get better so long as this guy is our offensive coordinator. Like, I mean, send the hate. Like, I mean, I'm sorry. Like Washington fans, like bring it, like, come on. Like, this is silly. Like he's not, I don't, I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to like start a fight, but like, come on. Like that's nonsense. Like I, I love, I love this defense. You guys are going to have a top four defense projected in beta rank next season. But like, Donovan is a Donovan's a big unknown. He hasn't called plays in a while. He's been in the NFL and he wasn't even, you know, he wasn't even a position coach. He was an analyst. Well, let's play around with some. I don't, oh, yeah, go ahead. I, oh, well, I was going to say, like, I don't even get how we're getting hit because like nationally, like people have cow with double digit wins. People have Arizona state ranked. We have Washington over both of those teams. If, if the season gets played, with Washington, like I just have Washington as a touchdown underdog at USC and at Oregon, but I have Washington as the as the third best team in the Pac-12. I, I feel like any reasonable person could at least see that viewpoint. It's not like we have Washington ranked like fifth like behind Arizona State or Utah or Cal. The um, on the flip side with the Washington fans in terms of the optimism was on, on our show. We basically said, hey. Um, we know that normally Washington has a good defense. They bring a lot of young people back. So let's see what happens. And a lot of Washington fans basically pushed back and said, well, like this is what always happens. And they were like, they were right. I mean, and again, we weren't pushing back against that. It was like, Hey, you know, usually when you have new personnel, like we kind of want to make sure to see if you're going to be an elite defense. And that's kind of where we had predicated it. Right. It was, it wasn't, Oh, Washington's going to have a good defense. It was like, if Washington wants to stay at an elite level, then some of these players are really going to have to to fill some shoes in a big way. And they did. So I mean, like credit to where credit's due on that front. And with the fan base being optimistic about that, I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, hey, Rob, where, where was Washington's offense in 2019? Do you have those numbers up? Their offense was at 38 in 2019. I mean, they were at 44 the year before. So you could argue that, you know, Jacob Eason's cannon arm got them all the way up to 38. So how for Washington to make a big leap, and I, I would call a big leap challenging for the Pac-12 uh, championship, which would mean they would have to beat Oregon um, and and beat USC. How far do you think Washington would need to jump on the offensive side of the ball? They need to have a top. They need to have a top twenty offense next season. Okay. Um, so like so Washington's defense projects at number four. Oregon is at number two. USC, I mean, the trouble, like, the, and the reason is even where USC's defense might be bad, offense is just worth a lot more than defense these days. Uh, and so if you're going to pick between having a very good offense or a very good defense, you want to pick having a very good offense. Um, and so USC with their offense could potentially, I mean, I, I think could hang with either Washington or Oregon potentially next year. 
um, you know, for Washington, it's it's actually they had a fairly experienced offensive line last year, but they really struggled running the football. They were at 64 in effective rush, um, you know, last season. They they really need to pick it up running the football again. That's going to be tough. They lose a lot of experience on that offensive line. Um, too many three and outs. You know, their negative drive rank at 44. Uh, not enough explosive drives. I mean, not just not enough big plays at 53. I mean, they just they have a lot to work on to be able to to potentially get up to there. Um, you know, and and we'll see. I mean, like uh, you know, anytime somebody gets a new coordinator, like there's mileage may vary. I mean, I was just covering ASU, and it was like, hey, we have two new coordinators. One of whom, Marvin Lewis, hasn't been a full time DC since 2002. <laughs> you know, yeah. like there's that. That kind of thing introduces a little bit of uncertainty, um, you know, and with Donovan, there's there's definitely from some uncertainty because he, you know, he wasn't an offensive play caller in the NFL. And what did he learn and, and did he improve from where he was in college? Yeah. And the bar's higher. I mean, if you're a Washington fan, you know, if you took Washington's defense and offense and, and put them in most Pac-12 teams, I think most Pac-12 teams would take that. Uh, but, you know, if you're Washington, you're vying for the conference championship like that. That should be the goal. So um, anyway, it'll be interesting to see if that happens this year or next year. We'll find out. Um, anything else we should cover, guys? I don't have anything. On time. No. And under, yeah. On time and under budget. OK. OK. Um, well, we will. We will be back. Uh, stick with us. We. Will I def- forgot. I said I would answer a reader question that I forgot to bring up, and it just hit me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I said we'd do it. So if we could slip it in under the wire. Um, I had a question about how Baderang handles home field advantage. Um, and uh, it's it's two things uh, at how we calculate home field advantage uh, for Baderang. It is a – there's a dummy that's in uh, all of the models that are part of Baderang to control for home field. Um, and that gets added in, um, if you're playing at home when we project a spread. Um, but then there's actual, actually that, that dummy doesn't quite cover, it doesn't quite fit the data as well as I would like. Um, and it is fairly, uh, the, the, as you go across the posterior distribution, if you look at how it shakes out for, um, you know, as beta, as the space between teams increases, as like the team, one team gets a lot better than the other home field doesn't move much. So like there's a, there's a constant, then we add on there as well. That helps the fit on the spread to reduce, you know, make, make beta rank more accurate against the spread. Um, but it only is about two and a half points, uh, give or take like beta rank. It's just under two and a half points is what beta rank does. Uh, that is most accurate against the spread for home field. Um, so if, I hope that answers the question. If it doesn't, uh, you know, shoot me another follow-up and I'll, I'll try to answer that. Yeah, Max, you want to jump on that? What, what do you, do you add about three points to your handicapping when it's a home game? Uh, it, it, it depends on the home field, like Utah and Colorado, just given the altitude, uh, that's usually, I usually have that closer to four. And then there are other, um, home fields like Oregon and Washington that I think are worth three and a half. But also, it, it just depends on uh, travel schedule for both the teams. Like if the home team is coming off a bye and the visiting team is off a short week because of because uh, um, of it's a Friday game, it, it, there are like several factors that depend on the like the overall value I place on it. But in terms of like just the stadium, I, I would say that Utah and Colorado are the top two. Yeah, if you're new to the show, um, dude, Max shines when it comes to bye weeks and look ahead games like dude max is just all over that stuff 
Um, so hopefully we have a season so that we can go through that again because Max, I think, did 62% against the spread on all games in the Pac-12. So not even the games that he – like, that includes games he didn't want to pick. Um, and I think I did 56%. So, like, I, I had a good year last year, and I wasn't even close to Max. So um, hopefully we have that season. We can kind of go through the games individually. Uh, we always break them down. And, uh, well, we'll, we'll figure out what we're doing next week. Um, stay with us. Thanks for listening. And if you like the show, share it with a friend or, um, or write a review. Uh, that that's like the big thing you can do. We certainly appreciate it. Um, and we will catch you soon.